Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, no housekeeping today. Today I'm presenting a conversation originally recorded for the Waking Up app. And while podcast subscribers already get access to those conversations through my website, it seems to me that this episode might be of more general interest. So I'm releasing it now on the main podcasting feed. Today I'm speaking with David White. David is a poet and the author of 10 books of poetry, along with four books of prose. And uh, he holds a degree in marine zoology and has traveled very widely and has, as you'll hear, a sensibility that is quite relevant to questions of awareness, the nature of the self, what it means to live an examined life, and other topics that are central to my concerns here. It really was a great pleasure to speak with him, and he has a wonderful voice. So, now I bring you David White. I am here with David White. David, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. So, uh, I recently discovered you. I think I was, I was actually at the TED conference where you spoke a couple of years ago, but I think I was not in your session and just heard echoes of, of the effect you had on the rest of the crowd, which was quite positive. And then I subsequently saw that talk when it came online and, I don't know, saw something, some, another place where you were speaking and reading and now have, have read uh, one of your recent nonfiction books, your prose books, The Three Marriages, which I want to mm. talk about. But yes. you, you're, you're primarily a poet. And so I just, to begin, I, can you describe you know, how you view your career as a writer and some of the other things you're doing? Because I know you're not just working as a writer. You also work with organizations and you have an interesting way of um, interfacing with the world. So tell me uh, what you're up to. Yes, I suppose there's two ways of looking at my way as a writer. One is looking back on it and looking at the uh, astonishing journey. One is the frontier that I'm on now. And uh, I've always seen poetry intimately connected to good thinking. There's mm -hmm. a tendency to think that poetry is on the arts side and therefore you leave your strategic mind at the door. But uh, it's actually uh, good poetry is very, very practical in looking at the phenomenology of, of the conversation of life. In other words, what happens along the way when you try to deepen that exchange. And uh, Coleridge said, no, no poet begins in philosophy or they write very bad poetry. And it's, mm -hmm. it's very true. But uh, he also then said, but every poet becomes a philosopher. Interesting. And so, yes, uh, the practice of verbal acuity connected to listening and visual acuity starts to ready you for larger and larger understandings. And I suppose the work of the poet is to invite, create language that invites everyone else into that understanding at the same time. In a beautiful way, actually, not just a not just a quotidian mechanical way, but in a a way that actually enriches you mm. as you enter the experience. You have a background in is it marine zoology? I do indeed. Yeah, I had a ten year excursion into science sciences from when I was seventeen to twenty seven or so, and I worked as a guide in a naturalist guia naturalista in the uh, Ecuadorian National Park System in Galapagos and uh, felt like I, I, actually, I actually experienced all of my ambitions being fulfilled and left Galapagos wondering what I would do for the rest of my life really. And that's when the return to, you could say that the states of attention that I ex experienced in Galapagos also began my, restarted my poetic career because I've written poetry since I was six or seven years old, probably under the influence of my Irish mother. Mm. And then I wrote seriously through my teens until I was 17 or 18 when my science has overwhelmed my time for writing. And it was good to have that hiatus. But when I was in Galapagos, I started to understand that there were 
five different levels of attention that I could identify. Of course, there are many, many more. The Tibetans have gradations of hundreds of them, but but there were five that I could identify, and they were. I noticed that the deeper my level of attention for the world, the more that my identity as a person actually changed and also deepened and and widened. And you could say that uh, I started to understand that uh, that a person's identity didn't depend on their inherited beliefs. And I've always felt, actually, that a person's beliefs are the least interesting thing about them, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, uh, Would that most people realize that? Uh, exactly, yes. And um, that your identity actually depends more on how much your attention you're paying to things that are other and people mm. that are other than you. And of course, you're in a discipline here of interviewing, which is a real discipline of listening to to those that are other than you. Yeah, I, I've begun to say that really our, our true wealth is not even in the coin of time. It really is its cash value is in what we do with our attention, because we all know what it's like to guard our time and then to squander yes. it by misusing our attention. So really, your your life becomes the substance of it, moment yes. to moment. It, it becomes what you do with your attention. And yes, and with regard with regard to your uh, your metaphors with time, the great thing about the deeper and deeper states of attention lead you into the timeless, yeah, and the untrammeled. Because we have all this surface language around time, you know that you can, as if you, that we will kill time, as if it, that would be possible. We, as if we could make time, as if that would be possible. Mm. <laughs> and um, we have all kinds of language which actually don't doesn't bear examination when you apply it to time. Mm. And so, um, I think one of the reasons poetry is so is so coming to the fore in the world of Instagram and and the falling away of our previous structures is is its invitation into the timeless and the untrammeled. You know, we have so many children in the developed world who are bullied into their adulthood just by the way that we educate them and uh, the uh, the amount of coercion around learning. Mm. And there's something about poetry that allows you to have your own language and to set and that sets you free. Do you have a background in meditation or any contemplative tradition like in Buddhism? You just mentioned Tibetan Buddhism. So what's your background there in Eastern or Western spiritual traditions? Well, my first background was spending an enormous amount of time by myself out in the woods and fields and hills of Yorkshire, where I grew up, mm. the north of England. I had a kind of Wordsworthian childhood. I had a very fierce education, too, in a, a kind of the last gasp of the old classical world, classical teaching. But I, um, we um, had marvelous countryside around where I grew, and I spent a lot of time alone there and uh, listening and watching. And I was always entranced by landscapes. So that was my first introduction. And then I started when I was at university to get really interested in the more esoteric forms of meditation. And I tried all kinds of things myself. And when I think back, it was, it was, uh, it was quite droll what I was turning my mind to. But then I discovered uh, Zen sitting and Zen teachers. And I, I sat Zen quite seriously for many years with, uh, with very serious teachers. Mm. And so I I feel like that has stood me in good stead, actually, over the years, even though I don't have a, a Zen teacher now, I feel it like it's in my body somehow. Mm. And what about psychedelics? Did you have a uh, phase, or in you, are you in a phase now where you have uh, used the, um, the pharmacological advantages of, of uh, the modern world? I did have a phase. Yes, yeah. I did. And I found them very, very helpful. Which did you take? Well, I was in South America, and... Uh, so I uh, had experiences with the various forms of mushrooms mm. and then with, uh, with ecstasy. Mm. And uh, my first experience was one that was really, really rejuvenating, and that was with LSD when I was at university. 
And I hadn't realized until I took it and had that experience that, and it was just one experience actually, towards the end of my time at university. But I hadn't realized how much I'd been mourning my childhood and my childhood mm. visions, mm. or vision, I should say, of the world. And that experience on LSD really restored my, the bridge between the young man I was becoming and the child that I had been. And uh, so that was really remarkable. I'm very thankful to it. So I've never, I've never been a drug taker, but every now and again, I've had these threshold moments mm. which, have, um, which have deepened my experience. Whenever I have taken anything, I've always just wanted to be alone, actually. Yeah. So I often find company quite distracting, uh, no matter how much fun you might be having. <laughs> yeah. I always yeah. feel this incredible invitation to the underground, to the, you know, to the, to uh, grounding it in my body and grounding it in understandings and insights. And uh, so I'll most often just take off by myself walking. Nice, nice. Well, yes. and, and was that before you got into Zen practice? Yes, yeah. yeah. And a couple of experiences after in yeah. parallel, yes. Yeah, well, um, yes. it's, I, I know I know whereof you speak. I did not have a Wordsworthian childhood to be called back to, but um, still uh, the, yes. the vividness of uh, the natural world is, is available on the other side of um, many of those compounds. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I, actually, let's start off with a poem. I'd like you to read The Bell and the Blackbird because this is one of these poems where the connection between your work and paying careful attention to the world and you know the, the subsequent changes in one's consciousness when one does that is so obvious. So maybe you could give us that. I poem. will. I'll recite it. I have it yeah. in my memory, actually. And, and uh, just a little context for this. Uh, the poem is called as you said, it's called The Bell and the Blackbird. And uh, it's really the inherited understanding in the Irish tradition, or you could say the Celtic tradition, but particularly in the Irish tradition, that human beings are constantly choosing too early in the conversation, that the strategic mind throws up these black and whites and binary questions because that's the only way it can approach things. But uh, almost always, the way forward is actually holding them both together or the way between things. And the image here is of a meme in the uh, Irish tradition, of, of which occurs again and again, of a monk in the old Irish church, which had a tremendous relationship with the natural world, a monk standing on the edge of a monastic precinct and hearing in the morning and hearing the bell of the chapel calling him to prayer. And he says to himself, that is the most beautiful sound in the whole wide world, which is the call to silence, to depth, to another context beneath the context that you've established in the world. And he's just about to turn towards the chapel when doesn't he hear from over the wall, he hears the call of the blackbird from the fields and the woods. And then he says to himself, and that is also the most beautiful sound in the world. Mm. And the lovely thing about the story in a very Irish way is you're not told which way he goes. Because actually we don't get to choose. If you think about it, the first call is to a deeper understanding of ourselves. You know, should I play my, should I rehearse more before I play my instrument in public if I'm a musician? Yeah. Should I deepen my understanding? Should I educate myself more? Should I get a degree before I hold myself at, the, at the, the job world? And the other one is the call of the world just as you find it, just as you hear it, just as you see it, and perhaps even more importantly, just as it sees and hears you. So this is the piece, The Bell and the Blackbird. The sound of a bell still reverberating the sound of a bell still reverberating, or a blackbird, a blackbird calling from a corner of the field, asking you to wake into this life, or inviting you deeper into the one that waits. The sound of a bell still reverberating, still reverberating, or a blackbird, a blackbird calling from a corner of the field, 
asking you to wake into this life or inviting you deeper into the one that waits. Either way takes courage. Either way wants you to become nothing but that self that is no self at all. Wants you to walk to the place where you find you already know you'll have to give every last thing away. The approach that is also the meeting itself. Without any meeting at all. That radiance you have always carried with you as you walk both alone and completely accompanied in friendship by every corner of the world crying hallelujah. Hmm, nice. Nice. I, I love your, your style of recitation. I, perhaps other poets do this and I haven't noticed, or is this really your own um, innovation? But you, you repeat lines in a way that are, it's kind of obvious when you hear it. It's, it's especially obvious when you see it on the page that these lines are not repeated in the written form of the poem itself, but you, you, no. you, you kind of retraverse your steps again and yeah. again, in a, in, and it has a kind of incantatory quality to it. And it, it really it just it demands that your poems really be recited by you. I mean, that's the form yeah. in which to consume them. Well, if you think about it, it's actually, I mean, it's, 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 it's seen as an innovation, but it's actually a re-innovation because it's how poetry would have been recited in the old, in the old traditions. Yeah. And the chorus is, was in the Greek theater, for instance, was something that was, that the gods had said, and therefore it had to be repeated because it couldn't be understood fully the first time. Yeah. And I often say poetry is language against which you have no defenses. So you have to actually say it in ways which, against which there are no defenses. If you hear a good marital argument, you'll hear both sides repeating things, usually three times, yeah. The poetry of anguish. Exactly, yeah. in three different ways, because the other person must hear it. Or, more, poignant, more poignantly, if you are bringing very bad news to another person of the loss of a loved one, you will always be very careful about how you say it, and you will say it three times in three different ways, and you leave silence between the lines, yeah? And you will have this tremendous physical connection to the listening ear. So that's the way, that's the way poetry should be read, actually. And it's a great pity that it isn't in so many poetry readings, because people turn up at a poetry reading, perhaps for the first time, and they hear something remarkable from the poet, man or woman, and before they know it, the poet's on to the next line when they haven't even they haven't even actually caught up with what they just heard. Yeah. So many poetry readings can be actually quite violent to the listener. So we need to treat the listener with a deep kind of respect. Give them some space. Yeah. Give them some silence. You don't even know what you've written yourself. So you need to hear it too. You don't, you don't understand fully the implications of what you've said. And if, and if you do, it's not good poetry. No. It always leads to broader and wider emancipations of your understandings. There are many lines I've recited for 20 years, you know, and then suddenly you're standing somewhere in a hall or a room or, and you say, my God, I never understood that in 20 years of reciting it, but there it is. You know? Yeah, so that's beautiful. So you are literally trying to overhear yourself say things you didn't know you knew. That's the discipline of writing poetry. So you, you speak about what you call the conversational nature of reality in various places. What, what do you mean by that? Well, it just seems very obvious to me. Whatever a human being desires for themselves will not come about exactly as they first imagined it or first laid it out in their minds. Equally, whatever the world desires of you will not happen, no matter how coercive that world is. What always happens is the meeting between what you desire from your world and what the world desires of you. It's this frontier where you overhear yourself and you overhear the world. And 
that frontier is the only place where things are real. That's the, that to me is the, is the conversational nature of reality. And the discipline is to stay on that frontier as fully as you can. Does that relate in your mind to this, this opposition you sketched in, in the poem, the, the distinction between you know, hearing the, the summons of the bell and yes. going in to work on yourself and, and, and yeah. improve your craft and prepare, rehearse, yes. and not yet enter the world, but, yeah. you know, as opposed to actually trying uh, your gifts such as they are in public and for better or worse. Yeah, it's lovely relief, actually, to realize you don't get to choose. Mm. You always have to rehearse. You always have to deepen. You always have to practice. You always have to find the next level of generosity in your being or your soul. And you must meet the world just as it finds you now, too, with whatever you've got. Right. And I think once you actually follow that frontier conversation, the conversation itself actually starts to deepen you. And after a while, you realize, well, actually, I don't need to do the work. I just need to be in that exchange, in that meeting place. In many ways, that's the way my career has gone. It's only a career in looking back. It's a kind of uh, frontier, otherwise, in which you just try to keep a kind of integrity and groundedness while keeping your eyes and your voice dedicated towards the horizon that you're going to or the horizon in another person that you're meeting. Yeah, that, that actually describes how I view my career as well. I mean, it really is a... Yes. Because I'm, I'm now spending most of my time doing things that I never envisioned doing. And if you had told me yes. you know, five or ten years ago that I would be spending my time in precisely this way, I would not have believed you. Yes. Had you shown me the path into the future, exactly. I, it would have not only been unfamiliar to me, it would have, I would have had reasons why that could not be the path. Yes. Yeah, that's very well said. Yeah. I always think a good work always leads you into worlds you could not have imagined for yourself. You know, I grew up from my Irish and Scottish and Yorkshire sides with this kind of uh, blood allergy to, uh, to all hierarchical powers. Um, I come from long lines of Irish, Scottish, and rebels, and Yorkshire Luddites. Mm. And uh, so you can imagine when I first went full-time as a poet, and I had my first invitations into the corporate world, my first reaction was to say no, because my only, my only understanding was that I would have to compromise myself and compromise my work and create some kind of propaganda that worked in parallel with whatever the organization wanted. So, so it was a powerful, upsetting, and subversive surprise to find that I didn't have to. It would have been quite, it would have been much more comforting to have found that I did need to compromise and therefore I could say no. But I was actually led into, the, into a world that I, I never imagined I would, uh, I would belong to. Mm. Yes. Well, this seems like a nice point of segue to your book, The Three Marriages. And mm. uh, there's one, I, you should say what those three marriages are, but I'd like to start with what you have observed to be the illusion of work-life balance. Yeah. Because this, this strikes me as a, yeah. an unusual and, and very useful observation. Yeah, it's another binary that just has us more stressed. So I'm not only supposed to be this this incredible, inspirational center of uh, charismatic understanding in the workplace. But when I come home, I'm supposed to be this paragon of perfection as, as a partner in a love relationship or as a parent you know, in a family. So it just has us working harder all the time. So it's really interesting to think that we live and breathe, actually, between our different marriages. And uh, we have times where work is naturally the center of our life and other times where family has to come first. Yeah. And knowing when those rhythms appear and disappear is, is really part of 
being able to go through the doorway of happiness and satisfaction and understanding. So the first marriage, to my mind, is, is the one we normally talk about, you know, the Jane Austen horse and carriage marriage. But in today's world, that's also a, a love relationship with another person, whatever gender or mid-gender you are. Hmm. Uh, so that's the first marriage is a love relationship with, some, with one other person and someone who you make yourself physically vulnerable with. And that's what, of course, what sexual relations does is, is undermine our sense of physical frontier. That's why you have arguments with your intimate loved one that you don't have with anyone else in the world. So that's the first marriage. And uh, the second marriage is, is the marriage with your, your métier, with your vocation, with your work. And I, I often think work must be a marriage because why would you have stayed so long in your work if it wasn't a marriage? <laughs> you, must have, you must have committed, you must have made a promise to something that was greater than the knit and the grit and the difficulty of the everyday insanity of work. Just like a marriage at home or a committed relationship, if you were to take any one day in your work life as the reason why you were in that work, you'd lock yourself up in a padded room quite often and never come out, you know. But what keeps a marriage sane or a relationship sane or a work sane is the horizon to which we've dedicated ourselves. That's what keeps the difficulty of keeping the conversation alive with another man or woman. That's what keeps us alive in keeping the conversation, the heartbreaking conversation with our work alive. And then the third marriage is the marriage, the relationship with that tricky, movable frontier called yourself, who, like another person, is constantly surprising you as to who it's becoming hmm. and what it wants from life. You know? I always say you always meet the new you in the mirror in the form of a stranger. And you always turn away from that stranger to begin with, just like you always turn away from the surprise that your partner seems to inflict on you when they suddenly want something completely different. Yeah. Well, we have that same surprise with ourselves as we go through the different thresholds of our life, you know, through our mid thirties, through our mid forties, through our mid fifties. Yeah. And, uh, and you have to get to know the person you're becoming, like you have to get to know again and again the person who you committed to in the relationship. So it's interesting to think about that in your work too, that you have to keep letting your work go to see how it comes back to you. Mm -hmm. You have to keep the eros of your work alive. So we all know the way eros disappears in a, in a relationship or marriage when you become a logistical army of two. <laughs> Yeah, you do this, then I'll do this. And when you've done that, I'll do that. And then you both tumble into bed completely exhausted and you're gone after a quick look on your screens. Mm. So the way you keep it alive is through keeping delight alive. Delight in the other person, delight in yourself, delight in discovery, delight in your work. And then in these difficult, traumatic times when you have to give your partner away, often not knowing if they'll come back to you in the same way, you have to give your work away and allow yourself these interregnums, you know, these, these spaces where nothing seems to be happening actually, but you just keep saying no until you get the yes. That's what in the old Catholic theological tradition, it was called the via negativa, mm. not the negative tradition, but just saying no to everything that's not the big overwhelming yes, you know, that's you now, yeah. where you have to be, how you have to be, and where you have to go. Yeah, I can't help but feel that your conception of marriage and the relationship to the self will be familiar to everyone and, and resonate with them, and yet mm. the, the primacy of work, this third marriage or second marriage in your list, it is a more poetical 
and perhaps idealistic conception of work than many people are lucky enough to find in their lives. Mm. I mean, it resonates with me. I, I'm doing yes. precisely what I, I want to be doing as my yes. work, and when I no longer want to do it, I will I, you know, happily have the freedom to, to correct course. But I think of you know, so many people who are simply working in jobs for you know, purely monetary, you know, mercenary reasons, and yes. you know, they, their work is a hiatus between all of the things they would rather be doing. Yes. How do you think about that and how you know what I mean what advice or reflections yeah. do you have on that situation? Well, I think we all intuitively understand the toll that that takes on an individual human being. And um there's so much research on the health of human beings who feel as if they have some control in their work life and some creative input, and those who feel like they're just part of a, hier a hierarchy to which they have to say yes constantly. And the outcomes in health and in longevity are enormous between people who feel powerless and people who feel as if they have a participation in, in their endeavors. So that's the first understanding. Yeah. It's not a passive process to just have a job. The second one is that all of our great traditions have myriad examples of people doing everyday work in which the sacred and the untouchable is part of their approach. Yeah. And of course, the more industrial a coercion, coercive system you're a part of, you know, if you're just working alongside a robot that's keeping you, it's incredibly difficult to do that. And so to have the courage, you know, to, to say no to work that over time is killing you. And this isn't just, and this isn't just for people doing, doing blue collar jobs. You know, there are people in coercive workplaces which are ostensibly creative, but there's no real conversation or they're bullied by circumstances, or bullied by their boss. That environment has a tremendous effect on, on you, narrowing your identity, besieging you, and undercutting your sense of well-being and health. So the courage to actually step out. Now, there's a book out there which is, has a wonderful title, which is Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. And I've always said the first part of the title is true. Because <laughs> you don't know how long it's going to be yeah. before the money follows. And, usually, and always, it's, much long, it's a much longer time than you imagined. You can imagine when I went full-time as a poet, people were not right. running up to me, slapping me on the back, saying, great career move, David. Yeah. And uh, luckily, I was with a, a woman who... Uh, was very courageous also, and we just tightened our belts, and we lived on very, very little. So I do feel that courageous steps in work always involve a radical simplification. It's no use saying, yes, I'm going to take the courageous step, and I want to keep everything in place that I have, and keep mm -hmm. my six-bedroom mansion and my three cars and, and the lawn service and all the rest. Yeah? What's priority? what do you need? Yeah. A lot less than you think. Yeah. But it's no use being puritanical either. What allows you to be, to simplify, is keeping your eyes on the star that you're following. Mm. And it's that, that willingness to work at the coalface, which is one metaphor. Seamus Heaney loved that metaphor working at the coal face of language. <laughs> what does that mean? Is that a, a mining analogy? It means you're hacking away at the seam right, the actual know, seam of your coal, life. Yeah. yeah, the seam. Yeah. And you're getting all of this combustible material, you know, nice. that's going to keep you warm through the winter. And, uh, but, you know, it's just keeping that contact with what you love and not letting it go. Or, you know, I think the image of following a star is an ancient one because it's so accurate, actually, because when you are following a star, it disappears, and it, it disappears for half of the day. It's interesting that the star disappears in the daylight hours, where you're overwhelmed by 
the visual priorities of the everyday, but it reappears in the vulnerabilities of the night. And even at night, though, it will be covered by clouds or rain you know, or bad weather at times, and then it will reappear again. Mm. And it will even be dimmed by the parallel luminescence of the moon at times, you know, by other distractions. But I have a line in a poem driving through Connemara, it's a, and the last line is a star appearing over, is a light appearing over Linan, this lovely village on the west coast of Ireland there. And, and the last lines were a surprise to me. I said, uh, this, uh, seeing at last the star you did not know you were following. And I think that's a love, always a lovely discovery that you, you go through one door and actually find that the real door is, is either at the side of it, you know, or just beyond it. So. Yeah, there, there's an illusion yes. of control here, which we do well to give up even in those moments where we are really getting behind ourselves and pushing towards some imagined end. I mean, it's not that yes. things never turn out the way you plan, but yeah. there is a, an experience of surrender to whatever is true in the present, yes. which really is the the ultimate move that delivers well-being. I mean, there's actually a paradox in what you just said, it's a, and you actually flagged it in the beginning when you talked about there being many spiritual traditions that reveal that, you know, the, the sacred can be found yeah. even in apparent drudgery. And there's just endless examples of people who, who are coming from places of, you know, having had great careers they probably loved, and yet still, as a matter of attention, haven't located a durable basis of well-being yes. in their lives. And they'll go to, they'll hurl themselves into some explicitly spiritual circumstance. You know, they'll go to an ashram, you know, they'll go to a teacher like, you know, even a fairly, you know, fraudulent or at least, you know, somewhat compromised teacher like, you know, Osho or Gurdjieff and be told to clean the bathrooms or, or you know, dig ditches in the sun pointlessly. Yes. And they'll find in that drudgery, because of how they're, they've now devoted themselves explicitly to a, kind of a new chapter of this third marriage, this, you know, relationship to self, to the point of, of you know, self-overcoming, that even yes. in pointless and, you know, in another context, demeaning yes. work, they're finding the basis of self-transcendence. I mean, that is a, this is a capacity of the mind to find that. I'm not saying this is a prescription. This is not career advice I'm giving to someone who's unhappy in their work. But the truth is, attention really can redeem almost anything in the present. Yes, and so that's where it needs to be combined with discernment. And uh, there's that great, you know, there's the great story of the medieval quarry workers who were working day after day just cutting stone. And uh, one, one of, the, of their number feels like he has uh, a bit more, you know, ahead of him than just cutting stone. And so he decides to go off on, uh, on pilgrimage, and he says he's never coming back again to cut stone in his life. And off he goes, and uh, but he appears a year later back in the quarry, and uh, and happily puts on his apron again and starts cutting stone. and And they ask him why he's come back, and he says, "Well, I I've yeah. seen the cathedral in Paris that we're helping to build." <laughs> and uh, that context, I mean, I've cleaned a lot of bathrooms in uh, Zen in Zen Zendo Zen monasteries <laughs> around the world, yeah. but it's part of a larger context of silence, of being present, you know, and actually finding something beautiful in that, in that everyday work. So I think the difference is whether we feel as if we're trapped, and we may be trapped by circumstances, economic circumstances. And then, of course, there are times in our lives where you just have to tighten your belt, you have to put your shoulder against the wheel, and you have to earn a bit of money just because you need to support a family your kids, you know, those responsibilities. And it's whether or not you lose your eye for the possible horizon during that time. Because if you do, you'll remain in that cul-de-sac, you'll remain in that, in that, those straightened circumstances. So there are times where, where we do have to labor with seemingly no choice. But 
the ability to keep your eyes on your on what draws you on i mean that's true in relationship too we uh, we lose uh, often you know people in lonely circumstances will lose a, a possibility of of what might lie beyond you know of of they lose their their ideal image you know, and therefore they lose the horizon and you decide in order not to experience that vulnerability at its depth you decide mm. that you're 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 going to stop looking i'm just going to interrupt you with your own um arsenal of fine writing but you have a short essay on vulnerability i was wondering if you could read that i could yeah this is part of a collection of very short essays which are trying to redeem everyday words that we use in such pejorative ways it's from a book called consolations the solace nourishment and underlying meaning of everyday words I don't know if you remember when you were a child that experience listening to adults around you, your parents mostly, but also uncles, aunties, and friends of your parents, and and saying to yourself, "These people are insane. <laughs> they've <laughs> they've forgotten the foundational priorities of life." I mean, I wouldn't have used that language to myself as a child, but that was the feeling. They've forgotten, and adulthood is a form of amnesia. Well, I still have that. Uh, experience around listening to people use language that they're quite out quite often out at the periphery of the way the word is used and then the word becomes a weapon against themselves so this book was written to redeem a lot of words that we use in pejorative ways such as despair and uh, disappointment and uh, on and on mm. so uh, unrequited and regret shadow and on and on it goes and so this is a little go at redeeming vulnerability because when you think about it it is the natural state of human beings no matter how strong you make yourself in the gym no matter how many degrees you have no matter what weaponry you have as a country or a society your your actual foundational state is one mm. of being vulnerable so this is this is the piece vulnerability is not a weakness a passing indisposition or something we can arrange to do without vulnerability is not a choice vulnerability is the underlying ever present and abiding undercurrent of our natural state to run from vulnerability is to run from the essence of our nature the attempt to be invulnerable is the vain attempt to become something we are not, and most especially to close off, and most especially to close off our understanding of the grief of others. More seriously, in refusing our vulnerability, we refuse the help needed at every turn of our existence and immobilize the essential, tidal, and conversational foundations of our identity. To have a temporary, isolated sense of power over all events and circumstances is a lovely illusionary privilege to have a temporary isolated sense of power over all events and circumstances is a lovely illusionary privilege and perhaps the prime and most beautiful constructed and most beautifully constructed conceit of being human and especially of being youthfully human but it is a privilege that must be surrendered with that same youth, with ill health, with accident, with the loss of loved ones who do not share our untouchable powers, powers eventually, and most emphatically, given up as we approach our last breath. The only choice we have as we mature is how we inhabit our vulnerability. The only choice we have as we mature, is how we inhabit our vulnerability, how we become larger and more courageous and more compassionate through our intimacy with disappearance. Our choice is to inhabit vulnerability as generous citizens of loss, robustly and fully, or conversely, as misers and complainers, reluctant and fearful, always at the gates of existence, always at the gates of existence, but never bravely and completely attempting to enter, never wanting to risk ourselves, 
never walking fully through the door. I love that last line. Yeah, there's so much of life, especially creative life, where this comes back really to where we started with the bell and the blackbird. You can lose a lot of time preparing for life. You can convince yourself that, as you point out, all the while you're you're having to show up, you're confronting your relationships and the world and demands are being placed on you, but you can, in the activities that are more core to your identity, you can really decide to to not fully walk through the door for the longest time. And Yes, because it is, our artistry is, one of the things I've discovered looking at the phenomenon, I'm writing a book about this right now, but uh, is the, is your artistry is directly connected to your vulnerability. If you look at Vun, you know, vulneras it from vulnu, it comes from uh, wound in Latin. So it's where you are open to the world, whether you want it to be or not. You're just made that way. You care about things. The only way to stop being vulnerable is to stop caring. And of course, we do take that awful path that sometimes we close things, close off our affections. So it's really interesting to think about about robust vulnerability. So vulnerability, not as something pejorative, but that you actually might try to feel your vulnerabilities more. You might try to actually incarnate them, physically express them. Yeah? And uh, that doesn't come out as weakness. What it comes out as is an invitation, actually. An invitation to help, for help. One of the ways we go forward, and especially in artistry, is by asking for help, by what we see, mm. by what we hear, but also by apprenticing ourselves to people who are far better than we are, whether it's through a YouTube video or whether it's through being in the presence yeah, of the person. And, uh, and you learn to ask for help, actually and you follow the axis of your vulnerability into the world. So good luck to you if you're an artist and you're expecting to be in control. <laughs> right. And to have this thing that you're going to fire at the world like a piece of ammunition. You might have an initial gift to begin with, but it will very soon come to a shuddering halt. Through your disappointment, through the way people feel when they're hearing it or seeing it. Yeah. There's no invitation in the work. Yeah. You could say that the poet is constantly asking for the help of the listening ear, just as a good musician is. Yeah. They're present at that frontier. They're listening for the way the listening is going, actually, in the room. And they're following that gravitational pull. That's, that's the sense of a great musician, actually, that you're on you're on a journey together and you're actually both contributing to it. Yeah, it's interesting that even sincerity and comedy both contain their own kind of vulnerability. I mean to yeah. be sincere is to be exposed to irony, right? I mean yes. anyone anyone can knock you down a peg just by meeting your sincerity with with irony, but to attempt to make people laugh is also a vulnerability because they 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 might not laugh. I mean, they, every stand-up comic is yes. engaged in this yes. terrifying tightrope walk because the signature of failure in every moment is the is the silence of a crowd yeah. that's not laughing. That's right. Yeah, and uh, there's um, you know one of the great things in the Irish tradition, my mother's side and all the relatives there and all my friends in Ireland, is uh, the way that. Humor is used constantly to subvert any artificial ideas you might have about yourself or the world. And I always say every, every Irish conversation, at least in the West of Ireland, is based on the dynamic of subverting whatever foundation the conversation first started on. <laughs> and mm. then once that's done. So uh, the, you know, a sense of humor always tells you that Whatever context you've arranged for yourself, there's always another context that makes your context absurd. Right. So it's really interesting to think of, uh, of a sense of humor as a kind of practice, a spiritual practice, actually. Mm. 
of always seeing the absurdity or being willing to entertain the absurdity of what you're about. And at the same time, as the French would say, just being très sérieux, très sérieux about mm -hmm. your work, very serious about your work at the same time. And uh, so holding those two together, like the bell and the blackbird, I'm sure you have it in your work too. You're a philosopher, you're a, you're a, you're a uh, writer. You've always got to have a leavening of self-deprecation in there or humor that says that is willing to place your work in a context in which it it may not survive yeah mm. and the manner to which it wishes to be uh kept in yes so <laughs> yeah yeah well how, yeah. how do you think about the self in these various contexts so, i mean the self yeah. that one generates and meets in work in a marriage in solitude yeah with one's kids i mean i think we all are familiar with at least two ways in which this notion of a self seems yeah. apropos i mean that there's this the sense of yeah. self the sense of being the center of experience which as you know and as i've talked about a lot here that i think can be directly undermined to great benefit yeah. through meditation and then what one is left with is just the openness of awareness and you know the vividness with which everything appears there yeah but there's also just the different roles one has in life and and the, and the different states of self one encounters i mean it just feels very different yes. to be suddenly thrust into the role of being a parent versus being an employee versus being a a random customer in a coffee yeah. shop, you know, approaching the cash register. It's almost like one has different minds in each case. Well, it's all right having a self as long as you realize that there's no self that survives a real conversation <laughs> in intact, intacto, you know. I mean, we know that in marriage or committed relationships, the person who says, I do at the altar, yeah. Is not the person you are. Is <laughs> no longer you, accountable for, for what happens. No longer <laughs> <laughs> exists, even six months later. Yeah. Mm. And uh, you will not survive the marriage in the manner to which you want to be accustomed. Mm. Yeah. You will not survive becoming a father or a mother. I, I often think life is just one humiliation after another, <laughs> and you should get, just get used to it. But I mean, in the best sense of the word, that. Um, Humiliation means uh, being returned to the ground of your being and any from humus. Mm. Yeah. So when you're humiliated, you're returned to the ground. That's the literal original meaning of it. And any fancy ideas you had about yourself are shorn away, shriven away in the encounter. And uh, so there's nothing will make you more honest if you're willing and sincere than becoming a father. Mm. or becoming a mother, or becoming a sincere and vulnerable partner to another person. Yeah. The other part of it, and this is where, where humiliation and vulnerability and work connect together, is uh, <clears throat> the interesting dynamic is there's no sincere path you can take in life without having your heart broken. And this is, of course, something you're not allowed to understand until you're at least 35. <laughs> but, uh, oh, you shouldn't understand, you know. You should have an innocence that you can do it without having your heart broken, have a good work without having your heart broken, have an ideal marriage without having your heart broken, become the perfect parent without having your heart broken. But when you think about it, there's no love relationship you can have where you will not have that imaginative organ broken apart. Yeah. Marriage and relationship will do it. You'll always have to give away the other person who will break your heart. Yeah. You'll always feel betrayed at one time, whether you actually have been or not. Yeah. And there's never been a mother or father since the beginning of time who hasn't had their heart broken by their children. And they don't even need to do anything spectacular though usually they do <laughs> one time or another. But all they've got to do is leave the house when they're 
17, 18, 19, yeah, and go out into the world. Yeah. Or all they've got to do is to be existentially disappointed by the world in ways that you have no remedy to offer them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we hope, you know, in the professional environment that there, you know, I'll have my, I'll have my glass and steel structure I work in. I'll have my professional armor. That's the place I won't have my heart broken. But if you are sincere about your work, you should reach places where you don't know how to proceed. And you don't know how to go from here to there, and it breaks your heart. And that's where the vulnerability is so important, because that's where you're actually writing your assessment. You don't have the wherewithal to go on from here. You have to ask for help and you have to ask for the right kind of help, and you ask, have to ask for visible help and invisible help, both at the same time. How are you thinking about mortality these days? I saw you gave a talk at... I'm um, thinking that it's getting closer. Yeah, it is. It's nice. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, but it is not getting further away, no doubt. Yeah. By the day. <laughs> it's, uh, the, the, math, the math here works out in the end, I think. Yes. So I, you gave a, a, a talk, which is available on YouTube. I'll circulate a link to it somewhere on, on my website. But you were, you were speaking to a, an organization whose name escapes me, but it, was, it seemed to be a, a group of people who are either hospice workers or you know, in some, yes, some way yeah. you know, associated yeah. with end-of-life care. And yes. so you were talking a lot about yeah. death and generosity, and yeah. uh, maybe you can connect those for us. Well, when you think about it, the act of dying is the ultimate in generosity of a human being. You have to give up this life. You have to give up this body. You have to give up everything you know. You know, when my good friend John O'Donohue died, there was a man who was, I mean, he was just a, he was just a charismatic hurricane lamp. You walked into a room and the whole room was lit up both by his presence and by his laughter. And he had, he had a tremendous appetite for life. You know, if I said, would you like a lamb chop, John? He'd said, I'll, I'll take three, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, will we have a pint? We will, and then we'll have one just for no reason at all. You know? <laughs> and uh, and uh, there was a person who just loved life. And when he passed away, it was such a shock at 52, and he went at the height of his powers. I said to myself afterwards, you know, if there is a heaven, it had better be a very good place because he loved this place like it was a heaven, actually. And when you think about it, we have to give this ability to see, this ability to hear, the ability to see your daughter's face, you know, to see the light in the sky. We've co-evolved with all of these colors, these blues and even the grays of the Pacific Northwest where I live, or, or the, the rain, horizontal rain of the west of Ireland the ground beneath your feet, even sinking into a bog as you're walking across the barren in, the, in County Clare. They're all privileges, actually. And it's only when you get on, onto that, into that giving up on your deathbed, you realize what a privilege it's been. You know? hmm. And you've spent most of your, you spent a good deal of your life complaining about it all. <laughs> yeah. You know, involved in, in uh, a kind of homeostatic attempt to keep everything at the right temperature and the right. <laughs> and so you have to give that. So that's the ultimate in generosity. So the great lesson from the understanding that you're going to die, and again, you shouldn't know this until you get into your 30s. You shouldn't know. You, you should think it's going to happen to someone else. That's not me when mm. you're in your 20s. Yeah. When you do actually in your own time, mature into the understanding of your own death, that's when you start saying, I'd better start becoming generous now. I can't hold on to this. That's the line in the Bell and the Blackbird poem, the, to, to go to the place where you realize, you, where you already realize you'll have to give every, every last thing away, to go to the place where you already realize you will have to give every last thing away. So, of course, we can think about worldly goods and giving them away, but it's more to do with, with giving away what the gift 
we have inside us and the gift of bringing other people alive, which we all have in our own way. If you're a musician, you do it through your music. If you, if you're a poet, you do it through your poetry. If you're a philosopher, an interviewer, you do it the way you're doing it and in bringing the conversation alive. But also you realize that, uh, anyone who follows their art form always says, always says to themselves at one time or another, I have to bring this into my everyday life. I have to bring my, the joy of my music into my marriage. The intensity of intentionality that I have into my conversations with my loved ones. I have to bring my level of articulation and insight into those that are around me. And I have to bring, I have to bring whatever joy I can muster into this existence here. And of course, joy is not something you can coerce out of yourself. It's always, it's always entered through undoing, undoing the armor you have at the surface, undoing and walking off into the rain of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Although I feel like we can undo ourselves to an impressive degree, more or less on demand. I mean, even, even short of having a, an actual discipline like meditation that is synonymous with being able to do that. It's just, I think everyone knows they have a a clear concept of what it was like, you know, in the best hour uh, on the best day of their lives. Exactly. To be actually carefree, right? Yeah, that's well said. We carry... You carry that within you. Childhood memory, yes, you do. Yeah, you have it in your bones. And even if it's not childhood it could be you know just last week you had a moment where you you actually just were able to laugh with your child or you were looking at uh some you know beautiful scene in nature yeah and you you just put down the burden of your life fully and you can make that vivid in the present when you can remember to i mean you can just decide okay for the rest of this interaction with my spouse or with this stranger in a store, yes. I'm going to be completely available to the present moment. Yes. And just put down my, the instrumentalism that has otherwise taken over the rest of life, where you're just trying to get through from one task to the next and fully arrive in that moment. Yes. I, and I think you know, most people can do that to at least to a surprising degree if they just remember to. I think that might lead very well into the poem you spoke about earlier, the everything is waiting yeah, for you. Yeah, you, you've divined my ulterior purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Very so, good, yeah. So uh, yeah. Let, let's, let's hear that final poem. Everything is waiting for you. This was inspired by reading a very fine contemporary Irish poet, Derek Mann. And uh, Mann's poetry is always about the orphaned and unseen being the arbiter of the center of your life. Yeah. And I'd been reading him and soaking in his work and, and out of this, out of it, this is written almost in this style, actually, as a kind of homage. So everything is waiting for you. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you are alone. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you are alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you, or the window latch grants you courage. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing, even as it pours you a drink. 
The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything, everything, everything is waiting for you. David, it's been so great to speak with you. Lovely. And we've just begun. <laughs> yes. Yes.